0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Penalty Loop Podcast, a podcast about biathlon by Jordan Gottschalk from Penalty Loop and a regular guest, RJ Weiss from Biathlon Analytics.
1: Hey, man, how are you doing? Doing great. Doing great. Good. Um, I really hope
0: people uh, enjoyed the uh, the first part um, of the interview. Um what what stood out for me and then unfortunately that wasn't uh audible i know something visually but uh, when she talked about the personal highlights when she was talking about um susan dunkley's second place how it really her facial expression got quite emotional or maybe not emotional is the right word but you could see it, it meant a lot mm-hmm, to her mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so that was uh that was really cool to see i i tried a quickly video <laughs> without uh without permission we would have to ask anyway but uh it, it didn't work out but yeah that was that was super cool
1: It was yeah and in it was neat because obviously you guys have listened to it now but this is the way the question was asked i i anticipated you know sort of a litany of of good races that she had had and it was i think this speaks to a lot of clarity you know why so many people appreciate her but the first thing that really popped into her mind the thing that that clearly meant the most to her when she was talking about it was Susan Dunkley's performance I just thought that mm-hmm. was really neat um, because I think that if you ask most people you know to name their highlights they're of course they're going to think of some race that they did you know and and for her it wasn't even yeah. it was just sort of it didn't even didn't even take a second thought you know for that to come up um, yeah. I also did appreciate you know I, I didn't mention this in the first part but um Claire, and you guys heard this in the in the interview by now, but she and my daughter obviously share a name and, and it, it was not like I, you know, we knew we were having a daughter and of course it was going to be Claire, you know, we looked at, at biathlon names, but um, you know, uh, it, it was very special for me because I have as, as as an American watched her race a lot and she's been a very good representative for our country and continues to be and, uh, and so it, it is it was special for me to get to talk to her in this, in this way. And, and for that long, um, Mm -hmm. having had that sort of fan relationship for her. And then, and then obviously with, with Alex having, you know, and and Claire Egan sharing, sharing a name. So, um, that was, like I said, that was very special. So, um, you know, that was just a a personal note. And I meant to say that on our intro for the first part, but I just wanted to throw that in now. It's just fun,
0: right? To, to, um, all of a sudden, be in a in a conference call or whatever you call it, video call with with people that you've been rooting for and, and been seeing on TV year after year. And yes, yeah, still haven't. Every now and then, you need to be like, "This is happening."
1: <laughs> yes, it's just <laughs> so it's uh, very very neat. Um, yeah. So coming up in part two, um, I would say this is sort of the the meat of our conversation uh, that we had with her. We sort of touched on a couple of the the really big topics I would say in and biathlon biathlon today
0: yeah and uh it was it was I really enjoyed how passionate she was Mm -hmm. talking about it and uh yeah how how it very clearly meant a lot to her still and yes um it was it's it's nice because sometimes you're you're a little apprehensive when you ask those questions because you're not Point. sure how they're going to mm-hmm. respond, and uh, I think she she did amazing. It was yeah. really uh, was fun and, and just a open conversation. So,
1: yeah, I think it was in the answers to these questions. Is you sort of see why she was such a common answer when we ask people who would you interview, who else would you want us to to mm-hmm. interview and in or recommend that we talk to, and and uh, just yeah, like I said, you just you listen to these answers and and you can you can see why that's the case.
0: It's always, it's funny because, uh, I always, you know, there's always a couple of athletes that stand out, uh, for even though they're biathletes, they also have a lot of other things to, to tell. Mm-hmm. And I always think of, uh, Eric Lesser and, and, uh, Claire Egan as, as people mm-hmm. that it's very obvious that they don't just live for biathlon, even though yeah. that's a huge part of their lives, but there's, there's more to life than just biathlon
1: absolutely so um yeah so uh, enjoy and we will see you shortly for part three sounds good
0: have fun
2: You're um,
1: how much time do you have
2: oh i have a lot of time
1: oh great <laughs> so i was asking because i've got a couple <laughs> heavy questions okay. i've got a couple heavy questions and and if you don't feel comfortable answering them feel free to say no thanks Okay. um and uh and i'm asking you these as a biathlon fan okay. with some of your 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 experience sort of as a as a as an athlete and as you know with iview but but i'm also looking as a biathlon fan so mm-hmm. you mentioned working with uh with wada um mm-hmm. i feel that as a fan and this is just me personally i sort of have a, a complicated relationship with people like uh, uh and i apologize you are fluent and like 17 languages. So I'm going to mispronounce this and I apologize but but like uh, uh Rosterguyevs and from mm-hmm. from Latvia and, and in his particular history um how do you feel about athletes who had a doping related suspension coming back and competing again and you know uh, I, like I said I I personally just have a have a difficult time knowing how to feel about it. So I just I'm curious how how you relate with that.
2: Yeah. Um, I also have a difficult relationship with it. Um, I'm just, cause you brought him up. I'll s- say that, um, Rastogudievs, and I think you're pronouncing his name as well as least as I know how to pronounce it. Um, he served a suspension for an anti-doping rule violation, which was mm-hmm. that he missed three tests in a 12 month period. Um, I just want to be
1: Yes, of transparent course. Yep. about what that
2: mm-hmm. was. Um, there are doping cases in biathlon. Um, so, you know, some of them are discovered. I'm sure some of them are not discovered. Um, and the way the anti-doping rules are written, or that is that people serve their penalties and then they're allowed to come back into sport. Um, I In general, uh, I have the same difficulty as you do, or it's first of all, that person has broken my trust. And so Mm -hmm. I have a hard time trusting that they're clean once they've come back. Um, But also, I know that for people who were caught using substances, um, you know, like well there's a lot of athletes sure. um yeah but like alexander loganoff of russia comes to mind mm-hmm. um of yep. course russia and belarus are banned right now so that's a kind of different that's a, and that's a separate topic but um he he served a band for epo and it was only two years and then he came back um and now the rules have changed so that you know an epo fan would automatically be at four years but I mean when you're talking to someone like me who had a 10 year career you just see those 4 years and it they go by yeah. in a yeah. heartbeat. Um and we know that the physiological effects of something like EPO don't just go away. I mean if you can train
3: mm-hmm.
2: with like some of those some of the different doping methods are um they're they're not even really meant to boost your muscles or endurance like some of them are just meant to help you recover better mm-hmm. and faster and if you can train it makes you like a super person you know yeah. to be able to you can train more because you can recover more easily um well the rest of us who are clean athletes have to rest and just take time and can't train as hard i mean you get that training benefit you you can reap the benefits of those train of that training um of that cheating long after the cheating is done mm-hmm. um So I share with you that difficulty, um, in at least like cheering for people who, Mm -hmm. um, have served suspensions. I, I think it's, um, you know, I, I don't cheer against anyone. That's for sure. I think that's just bad karma. Um, and so it's more like, I just feel neutrally about those performances, I guess. Yep. Um, you know, I, I'm on the Athlete Council of the World Anti-Doping Agency now, and I, I do think, well, I, I'm, I know that legally there have been, there's a legal challenge to that. I even the idea of a lifetime ban,
3: mm-hmm. um,
2: apparently that doesn't really hold up in, in court, um, and, and, I guess that's one of the reasons why it's not more you know why it's not considered Mm -hmm. um but i do think long harsh penalties are good for for dopers and i and you know second time offenses things like that like you will occasionally see a lifetime ban for someone who's had multiple offenses or particularly egregious offenses especially if they're someone like a coach or a doctor a provider um yep. rather than an athlete because often and it is important to remember that often the athletes really are victims in these situations um mm-hmm. i mean in the in the u.s where we have this kind of independent spirit and and we've seen figures like lance armstrong who are like very clearly <laughs> um you know yeah. mm-hmm. influencing their own their own doping um in a lot of other places and teams that's that may not be the case. I mean, I think like their state sponsored doping in Russia is a good example where probably athletes who were already from a very young age involved in a sports system where doping was um, required. And, and, and the athletes may not have even known, you know, what the vitamins I'm doing air quotes there, mm-hmm. they were taking yeah. work. Like sometimes um, the athletes are not, it's, it's not, if not all dopers are like, Lance Armstrong. Um, some are more like the 15-year-old Russian skater in Beijing, Camelia Valieva, who you know she's 15; she's a child. Um, yeah. So, yeah, mixed relationship is a good way of putting mm-hmm. it. I, I agree with you. Um, in my role at WADA, I'm definitely pushing for strict sanctions for um, for strict sanctions for robust testing for thorough um, and deep investigations for frequent investigations and for accountability for trainers and, and doctors. Um, But it's, it sort of feels like, you know, pushing a boulder.
3: Yeah.
1: Like Sisyphus, Mm -hmm. right. Yeah. Pushing the boulder off the mountain only to watch it roll back down.
0: I don't, I don't understand the, the two year, like you were saying, that almost could make it worthwhile for people, right? To take the risk. And that's well, that's why yeah, I feel yeah. two years is just not enough.
2: I, yeah, I totally agree. So now uh the rules changed quite a while probably ten years ago, um, for a lot of those for those like big time doping substances like, like EPO now it's an automatic for your suspension. Mm-hmm. But the problem was the, honestly, we're, we are still, we in the kind of anti-doping world are still processing doping cases from the Sochi Olympics and the period Ugh. between Vancouver and Sochi 10 to 4, 2010 to 2014. So we are looking, we're still looking at cases from that, from before yeah. the time period before the rules had changed. And so, you know, it's, it's very frustrating. Like those people will be sanctioned and they'll be sanctioned with a two year ban and they retired eight years ago. So
3: right. it's, yep.
2: it's, um, yeah, <laughs> it's, it's frustrating, but the rules, of course, um, the rules that are in place now, I mean, for people who have, who are caught cheating now, the sanctions are, um, sort of a- increasingly strict, I would say for, for most substances.
1: Yeah, and and being on the medical side of things too, right? I mean, if there's money in it, like the science is going to advance on that end, on like the 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 recovery end. You mentioned, sorry, you mentioned recovery medications, mm-hmm. right? It's going to re- advance on that at just an increasing rate. Uh, the more money there is in sport, right? So um it just makes your job, or no, I shouldn't say your job, but the job of the trying to to figure that stuff out even more difficult. So um
2: yeah, and I I do just want to say that like. I I do think that most I just want to talk about biathlon I do not I do not think that many biathletes are doping Mm -hmm. to put it in a different way I think that most biathletes are clean like the large Mm -hmm. majority of biathletes are clean um and certainly I was clean and my team was clean um at least I uh, our philosophy was all about that like I'm not going to take responsibility for anyone other than myself, mm-hmm. but definitely our whole ethos was around I think, as continues to be around integrity and clean sport and like why it wouldn't even be fun to win if you knew that you nope. had cheated to get there. I just, I fundamentally don't understand that. Um, but yeah. So I just want to say to the fans out there, like, I I think There's, there are probably pop, there probably are people who assume that like everyone's doping in elite sports, and that's definitely not the case. And we do tend to talk about it um, a lot in interviews because it's it's a part of being a fan. And it's and and, in this interview, like I'm involved directly in anti-doping, so I understand why we're talking about it. But for fans listening, I do just want to remind people that you can still cheer for people and feel good about cheering for people. And I really think the large majority of biathletes are. Are Clean and competing with integrity
1: so you mentioned something just then, and uh it, it reminded me of an I, one of the interviews I read that you had done previously, and i mm-hmm. I apologize I forgot who it was, but there was somebody that um uh, you mentioned where they were had been doping, and they they specifically said that like they they were happiest when they were between like fifteenth and twenty fifth because when they were yes. higher than that, like they felt bad' and it's yes. like so what are you doing? What is yeah, the point? Yeah, this was you
2: know? really um one of the more incredible um interviews that I listened to. Um I'm trying to I can't tell you off the top of my head um who did this interview, but I I think it was actually Faster Skier that someone at Faster Skier um the, you know, US mm-hmm. online ski news yep. website. Um They did this interview with, um, and I can't remember the athlete's name either. Um, an Estonian young man who cross country skier, who was caught, um, in the act of doping at the, um, 2019 cross country skiing world championships. And yeah, that's, he did, he did this like fairly open, um, transparent interview where that was, I, that was, I think the the craziest thing that he said to me it was, yeah, just admitting that he, he actually didn't. Yeah. Like his favorite, his favorite yeah. finishes were whatever it was like 15 to 20. Cause if he did better, he felt guilty. Um, I just, I mean, my moments of joy as an athlete finishing in the top 15 or the top 10 or the top six yeah. uh, were so profound. And I'm so glad that they weren't tainted by anything. They were mm-hmm. just pure. Um, yeah. and well, that's the other side too. I wouldn't too have of- it any other way. I just, yeah. But people, you know, people get sort of twisted up in things all the time for various reasons. So,
0: yeah. I feel the other side where, you know, you're also taking something away from others,
3: mm-hmm.
0: right? By if you win a gold medal and yeah. you're, you're doped up that also means that the number 2 should have won
3: yeah
0: and you take in that away right and and yeah. you know of course there's always the, you get a gold medal instead of a silver medal 20 years after but
3: mm-hmm.
0: and maybe that feels justification but i can't imagine that that generates the same joy as you would have had in the moment right so that's, yeah. i don't know
3: yeah
0: i'm i'm pretty black and white on it but uh i think especially nowadays even the terezihouk was a was a good example whether she got doping because of the lip balm or not, I think mm-hmm. as an athlete now, people are educated enough to know what's going into their body.
3: Yeah, you need to Or be. should
0: take responsibility for it. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. And that was an anabolic um, steroid as well. Right. That substance so that was in the
0: lip cream. And that's where I feel that if you're willing to take that chance,
3: mm-hmm.
0: I'm. you cannot convince me that that person can be turned around two years later and be anti-doping or anything. Like it's if if you're willing to do that, then you know mm-hmm. I'm not gonna judge that fact, but I don't think you're gonna turn it around. But yeah.
1: Um switching to another equally exciting topic. <laughs> and, and and seriously, like so I, I actually that was um that was even more than I expected, but um you mentioned Loganoff and this was mm-hmm. this is the second topic I was gonna get to and obviously we haven't I guess you could go find their races, but we haven't really seen the Russian or Belarusian athletes compete in a couple of years. The war in Ukraine shows no signs of slowing down. Um, And you know, it's a sort of a miracle actually that the Ukrainian athletes are able to go and compete as well as they have Mm -hmm. been. I I certainly don't believe that I would be able to. So Mm -hmm. um, what is there any relationship between the IBU and the, the Russian and Belarusian athletes right now? Um, or their federations, and you know, do you ever foresee what would have to happen for those athletes to come back? And do you have this is a lot of questions all in one? Do it's you have okay. any connections to those athletes? You know, uh, just as having been a former athlete, and yeah, you know,
2: um, well, I'll start with the official relationship between the IBU and the Russian and Belarusian bathlon federations. Um, those two federations are suspended. From IBU, so they're actually not even members of the IBU at the moment. Um that decision was taken at the twenty twenty-two IBU Congress last fall in Salzburg, and it was a very strong, strongly supported decision. So I I may be one or two off on the numbers here, but it was, you know, something like 39 to 1. or
1: Yeah, overwhelming.
2: Like it was one, there was one country that voted to support um, the inclusion of Russia and Belarus. Mm-hmm. So I actually was a bit surprised even by the strength of that decision that it was so yeah. unanimous. Um, so that was, that was a decision again, taken by the whole IBU Congress. Um, initially the IBU executive board of which I'm part took a decision right away in February when the war broke out Mm -hmm. in 2022 to, um, to ban the teams from Mm -hmm. competition. Um, that was, For a number of reasons, Um, you know, first and foremost, safety and practicality, Um, also solidarity with Ukraine, Um, and also, you know, to ensure that our competitions were not going to be used for political propaganda. Mm but then um we wanted to ensure that our executive board decisions were supported by the full i b u so that's um why we went ahead with that vote um last fall, and again, the ibu's decision was really clear um and that decision was purely uh based on a, a, a safety um safety and and protection of the integrity of the competitions um mm-hmm. meaning you know if you if you do include Russia and belarus we don't we we can't ensure that the competitions will actually happen um we probably yep. wouldn't have very many host countries jumping to um you know invite members of the Russian or Russian delegations and their firearms into the country. So, um, biathlon is in a really unique position with compared to other sports, just with the inclusion of firearms, um, especially with a lot of the members of, um, especially the Russian delegation being members of the military officially. Um, Mm -hmm. so, um, that's the official relationship. Um, from an athletes committee standpoint, we, have decided to maintain contact with counterparts, Russian athlete representatives, Belarusian athlete representatives. Um, We are not, you know, in contact on a super regular basis, but um, I have been in touch recently with uh, Katerina Yurlova, who's the president of a newly formed um, athletes committee inside the Russian Babylon Federation, um, just to, you know, basically reach out and say, yes, like we can be in touch and we can communicate. There's no, you know, there's no rule saying we can't communicate. And we actually think it's important that we keep those communication channels open, um, such that in the future, um, when reintegration hopefully can happen, um, we're ready to work together on that. Um, we did, we also did, um, we did a survey of Russian and Belarusian and Ukrainian athletes. Mm-hmm. Um, the survey was conducted in Russian in January. Um, this was a IBU Athletes Committee project um, about their views on potential um Integration into uh, into the Olympics um, because that is like the Ibu is not discussing re- reintegration at this point, um, but the IOC is at least yep. discussing it and thinking about it. And um, I believe they'll have a final decision on Paris, the Summer Olympics in Paris. Of course, less than a year away, um, they'll have a final decision on that. I believe in October. So, um, in our in, like in my role as the chair of the Ibu Athletes Committee, I um, I represent biathlon to the i o c s uh, international athlete network and so mm-hmm. um, we wanted to be ready to comment on that decision um and we wanted to comment with um, um with with knowledge of the of voices from Belarusian Russian and Ukrainian athletes so um we just got their views on on that and um and kind of asked them how they're doing and um that was very 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 interesting yeah. um and um it's a really the whole situation is extremely sad i mean above all it's sad because ukrainian people are losing their lives including athletes mm-hmm. um and their sport facilities are you know being bombed um, so that's sad um it is also sad that as a byproduct of this uh russian invasion of ukraine we now have some russian and belarusian athletes who are you know excluded from sport um whatever their views on Mm -hmm. the conflict may be um Mm -hmm. And so you know, I I have voted to support the ban of the athletes. I have supported to vote. I've I've voted to support the suspension of the federations, and I stand by those votes. But it has not been fun to make them.
1: I have to imagine not, and especially <laughs> being in your position and knowing all of those athletes on a different level than I think even a lot of the people on the the you know and the the executive committee might you know right just because of you yeah. Definitely. Racing with them, like, standing on the starting line with them. We have something in common.
2: Like everyone who does yep. Bathlon shares this this really amazing experience of the hard work and the as as biathlon fans know, you know biathlon giveth and Bathlon taketh away. <laughs> like everyone has yep. really good times and really bad times in Bafon. and um, we all kind of the athletes ride that roller coaster together, and it's I think a unique it's a unique thing. So we bond over that. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's sort of, it sort of feels like, you know, the, the soccer players who take penalty kicks in big matches, like that's what biathlon is like. It's like shooting Mm -hmm. often missing, sometimes hitting, sometimes having that hit mean a win, sometimes having that miss mean like a huge loss.
3: Um,
2: and, and the emotions that go through that go along with that. So we share that. And, um, I think that's why my athletes have somewhat respect for one another um and yeah i i have made a point to do what i can to you know stand in solidarity with with the ukrainian athletes and support them at a kind of institutional level um as well as a personal level. And, and at the same time to at least keep lines of communication open with Russian and Belarusian athletes. Um, I did, I spent eight weeks at Russian language school this summer. So, um, that one of the reasons I did that was in order to sort of facilitate that communication. And, um, and, and it's amazing how, um, how they respond knowing that I'm just learning the language. um, that that mm-hmm. that really opens up this door like oh this is a person who's who like actually is putting some time and effort into caring about yeah about me like wants to wants to know more wants to talk to me um i think that can go a really long way
1: yeah so um when you communicate back and forth i assume it's just like on
3: email or something like
1: that right okay (laughs) yeah Yeah. so it's not as i I didn't know if there was like some official way that you were supposed to be doing this or is that like no no i mean we're
2: really not in like we have open lines of communication to our athlete representatives um Mm -hmm. we did a survey in january but i'm not in regular contact um i mean with anyone from the suspended federations um and i but that being said, you know, do I f- follow athletes on Instagram? Yes. And do we occasionally have like very informal personal level um, messages back and forth? Yes.
1: Okay, cool. All right. Yeah, I just didn't know if it was like, <laughs> just like that, or if it was like, you know, from from your official IBU email account, you know, this is going out or something like that. Um,
2: only for those official kind of um, the survey respondents that we have between Yeah, like the survey or, um, you know, yeah. athlete Got committee it. to athlete committee.
1: Cool.
2: I try to separate that the professional
1: and the personal. Um, RJ, I feel like I'm dominating all the questions. Eh. And so I wanted to give you the opportunity to to, to hop in here. I apologize. Well, I,
0: since we're on the, the heavy topics and we talked about the uh, future of biathlon, but um, I, I just yesterday read another article that they foresee that in the next 10 years or so, about 50% of all the ski resorts in, um, in Europe need to look for another sort of income. Well, how do you, what do you foresee with biathlon that we're going to ski in covered halls well, or stadiums or
3: yeah, roller skiing? Um, or?
2: <laughs> so I, I actually think that the highest level, um, you know, the commercial professional leagues of, of snow sports are gonna be okay because of the extraordinary measures that are we already take to ensure that they happen on snow um, and I'll get into that. What I think is much more significantly at risk is the sort of recreational and development opportunities and without those recreational and development opportunities, eventually your elite base really drops off hmm. so for for instance, already today the Bathon world cup is supported by artificial snow man-made you know my man-made snow it's supported by snow storage I mean, some people probably don't know this but um any big ski resort or anyone who's hosting a big event they they blow snow they blow massive piles of snow in the winter when it's cold on the coldest days and they will cover up those piles of snow with you know, a layer of wood chips and a white tarp and save it for the next winter. Mm. And the, that's called snow farming. Those piles of snow are called a snow depot. Um, almost every venue today has one, um, or has some mechanism like that for ensuring a massive pile of snow that can be spread out onto trails, um, you know, for an event, even if there's not natural snow um so we're already seeing that in Bathlon and in cross country skiing. I'm not any an expert by any means on what's going on in in alpine skiing, but certainly they're also making use. I'm sure of a lot of artificial snow yeah. and probably snow farming techniques um, you know sometimes there's I think one of the worst examples is I was at a world cup once where they were trucking in snow from a glacier nearby.
1: Yeah. Oh my gosh.
2: Yeah. Um, which is just like, you know, you're burning fuel to drive the trucks. It's just bad. Um, so we're making those those events. I think those events are going to still happen because I think we're still going to have days in winter in certain places that are below freezing. And as long as you have that, you can blow mm-hmm. a ton of snow and move it around. Um, that level of expense and equipment and logistics is not going to happen for your average, you know, local ski tracks. So right. that's why I think the, the recreational and development opportunities. As we know, they're just fewer because you have fewer ski days. I mean, the town I grew up in, Cape Elizabeth, with Maine, had an awesome ski team when I was there, doesn't currently have a ski team. And that's because there's just not reliable snow in that area of Southern Maine. And, you know, they're not, they can't drive for two hours to go skiing. Like if you're a professional mm-hmm. athlete, you just go to where the snow is. If you're a kid in school, you need snow to come to you. So, um, that's why even, climate change is a huge deal. Sorry, go ahead, RJ.
0: No, and and part of that article was uh, it was a former snowboarder from the Netherlands who I think retired about eight or ten years ago, and she was saying when she was training, there was five or six glaciers she should go, she could go to to practice, and mm-hmm. there's only two of them left to yeah. to ski on in the summer. And I think one of them is actually wrapped in foil wow. during big parts of the day, just to yeah, you know, keep it as long as possible. But so I think it's, even at the professional level, it's going to get harder and harder.
2: Yes, to, to, it definitely is going to get right? harder and harder. And training yeah. certainly, yeah. So yeah. and it and it does get you know it it gets harder logistically it also it's like it gets more expensive it's also like less motivating less fun like yeah. i don't think people are going to want to do it as much when you're like out in the rain like skiing yeah. on a totally. man-made yeah, yeah. loop that's a kilometer long versus you know yeah. out on beautiful 200 kilometers of fresh snow green mm-hmm. tracks it's just different so right. um climate change is and and we talk about this in the view board it's one of the biggest threats to the sport um it's you know it's not like a hypothetical threat it's an active threat um but that the IBU is like I, I am happy to say that they are taking real action um you know i think it's easy for like athletes maybe don't see all of the big picture there and and we need to do a better job of educating athletes about what the IBU is doing but um like the biggest the biggest um carbon outputs from ibu come from hosting events and like per- thing things like the energy required to run the the tv and media broadcasting like or the the transport of that equipment i mean those mm-hmm. are things that are mm-hmm. really unrelated to the individual athletes mm-hmm. um and so athletes don't really see it so much but though like those are the big things are like heating parts of the facility where like the timing is happening, you know, those kinds of things. Um, and in those areas, the IBU is has a commitment to carbon neutrality. And I, 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 it feels like it's coming up really soon, but I want to say it's for 2030. Um, so, you know, already it's like electric vehicle fleet, you know, just getting renewable energies, relying on renewable energy sources for those big energy draws. Um, mm-hmm. You know, working with the um event organizers, like basically choosing events based on which ones have a lower carbon footprint has been a big uh-huh. that's been a big um change in how the IBU awards events, like now that's a big big part of the hosting contract is right. like what are you gonna do to make sure your event is as sustainable as possible? Like are, are you gonna um can everyone arrive by a Train, you know, or is everyone arriving by personal vehicles like that kind of yeah, stuff? Right. Um, so there are, there are, um, and I, you know, I, for people who are interested, like I'm, I'm really, um, I can't cite all of the details, but there is a lot of information about the steps that IBU is taking on the IBU website. So I would just direct people there um, who want to know more. Um, but all of this, I would say, is, and this is something we struggled struggle with in the board a little bit is a lot of these things are in direct conflict to some of our other priorities. Like we've already talked about on this podcast, we want to make sure that, um, you know, that smaller nations are represented -hmm. represented, and that there's commercial growth in the sport outside of Europe. Well, what are you going to do? You could have like the most environmentally conscious thing to do would have events, only in you know a 300 mile radius in austria germany and italy
3: yeah yeah
2: but we want to have races in the us and we oh, want to fly oh. everybody over here to do that mm-hmm. um so that's just one example where we have conflicting priorities and we need to really figure out um how to manage that and it's it's not easy and it's and um and certainly, we recognize that that climate change is. I think, like I said before, it's like a, it's most significantly going to impact in the near future our our recreational and our development base,
3: right.
2: which at the same time we're trying to grow. So, yeah,
3: <laughs> um, yeah, and it's
2: it yeah. Is
0: ironic too because even the snowmaking contributes to climate change, right? Because right, right, it takes like so much water and, and energy. So, yep, it's. Uh, but do you ever? Yeah. Can you picture a IBU World Cup race in a tunnel, in a in a covered shooting hall?
2: God, I hope not. <laughs> no, I can't. I really, it's hard to. I mean, first of all, that like I have trained in a, I've trained in two different ski tunnels. Again, this is something listeners might not know exists, but it actually there's several of them in Europe. Um, these kind of underground or semi underground tunnels. It sort of feels like you're in a giant shopping mall except there's no stores it's just hallways and the hallways are covered in snow and you ski around on them um and it's cold obviously it's refrigerated so (laughs) i have trained uh in toursby um which is in sweden i think although it might be across the border in norway i don't know i think it's in sweden um and also in oberhof germany Hmm. um but i mean you couldn't right now you there's a like there are there is a shooting range in overhoff, but I think it's got like four lanes you there's right you d it would it wouldn't be like a typical bath race with thirty people shooting at the same time um i mean I think we're probably more likely to see more roller skiing <laughs> right
3: um
2: and right now i mean that we've and the athletes committee feels very strongly about this right now the i b u has you know made it clear that the the on snow series is our primary series.
3: Mm-hmm. Um right.
2: that's our hallmark event that's where our commercialization is that's what athletes actually want to do. <laughs> um but in certainly there's much more room for expansion of the sport in roller skiing, you know, in countries where there isn't snow and certainly you can put on an awesome competition that's very exciting to watch. Um, which, you know, we've saw last week at the Bath on Summer World Championships, and we'll right. see you this weekend at Martin Furkod Nordic Festival, where they've got he's got, you know, the top, top, top athletes coming to compete, um, and they want to compete there. So I think if you do the event right and you put on, you know, make it fun, like spectators will come, athletes will come, um, and you know, maybe maybe that's the direction we'll have to go. But I certainly hope not. You know, I yeah, certainly hope yeah, that. Yeah we can have a sustainable, uh, on snow series. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's going to take work by all of us as individuals. It's going to take work by our teams, by, by IBU and other sport organizations. And, you know, (laughs) it's like the whole world has to work together on this. So
3: um,
2: again, that's another sort of pushing the boulder uphill situation. Um, but
0: yeah, and yeah. even there did, the, you know, because um, I'm assuming that people that are coming onto the World Cup now in biathlon, on average, have a lot more time on roller skis behind them than you did when you came on. Mm-hmm. So I think younger athletes are more familiar with it, but still on the recreational level, as you're saying, I don't see recreational athletes be on roller skis as much because it, yeah it's, it's quite a dangerous sport it's as I'm quite sure. dangerous
2: and it, it really yeah. is and it takes a long time like it takes a long I, I started really when i was 23 and i would say by the time i was when i was 30 like my not even like 30 yeah past 30 like it took probably eight years
1: mm-hmm.
2: of roller, a ton of roller skiing i mean every day for five or six or seven months you know between mm-hmm. may and mm-hmm. November yeah. um to f- really feel comfortable like roller skiing was very unpleasant for me and it really made a lot of training very unpleasant for me for the first like most of my mm. career um because I was simply scared um yeah totally of falling or hitting a pebble you know heaven forbid there's yeah. a crack in the road and there's no brakes and you know so I, like by the end of my career it actually got kind of fun and i can see now how Um, yeah, like you said, the young people who learn, you learn it when they're younger and have spent more time on roller skis at a younger age, like maybe it's like riding a bike for them. And, but, and, and I did get that feeling towards the very end of my career, like, oh, this is actually enjoyable. But I think you're right that like your average recreational person is not going to put those five years of training in, um, you know, to where they feel like they're having a good time on
3: roller skis. Yeah
2: and maybe i'm just maybe i was just slow you know maybe there's people who will just go out there no i I just think back on every time i go
0: go down a hill and it's one thing to do it on a roller ski track where you where you know there's one-way traffic but yeah there's also bicycles and you know people just relaxing on a sunday and not really aware of this guy on on four tiny wheels coming down the hill that makes it makes it
1: road
2: construction Uh.
0: oh yeah yeah
1: uh, I wish you guys could have seen the the face that, that Claire just made <laughs> clearly not a fan. Uh,
2: I, I, it, it really wasn't, it really wasn't that bad. And I came around to it in the very, yeah. very sunset of my career. But my coach loves to tell the story about, um, in the 2018, 19 season, I was like absolutely resolute about that being my last year. And mm-hmm. And so at the very, in the fall, you know, November, 2018, I did my last roller skiing workout was awful. You know, it was like sleet and yeah, just 39 degrees and raining. And I'm out there like in the dark, just horrible. And I just came in and put my roller skis in the trash can
3: (laughs) and sent him a
2: picture of it. Like I'm traveling tomorrow, you know, get on snow and bye-bye. These are in the trash. And then it was really pain, like one of the most painful parts about recommitting next spring to continue Mm -hmm. was that I had to buy another pair of (laughs) rollers.
1: Well, that was the problem, right? Because 1819, you had a really great year, didn't you?
2: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I was, like I said, I was I, after the 2018 Olympics, I was really resolute. I thought, you know what? I feel really good about doing one more year, I mean, mm-hmm. one more year, just for fun. Like I've earned it. I've made the Olympic team. I have put all this work into on, like really focused on qualifying for the Olympics. I was, you know, now I did that thing and now I'm just going to like free myself up to just have a good time. And we had a new coach, Armin Elkenthaler, who you know, mm-hmm. I thought I sort of knew and I thought we might get along and, Um, and, you know, ironically, I also thought, okay, now I'm just going to free myself up to kind of try to be the best I can be, which is by the way, what you should always do, but it's very easy to get hung up on like, okay, I have to meet this certain goal. I have to be top 30 at the world cup to make the Olympic team. And so when you do that, you know, it's maybe helps you get into that top 30, but it, it maybe helps you get like twenty nine. And I think that's what I was doing. And then after that, it was like, no, just open-ended. How good can I be? Um, And so I did that year just for fun. And I really was sure it was going to be my last year, but I I never actually considered what would I do if I actually had fun and began became really good. (laughs) And so I did those things and and made good money too, which frankly was, you know, a game changer at age 30. It's like, Oh, if I now I'm actually having a decent career doing this, um, Uh you know, maybe I should stick around for a while because at that point, the, the, like, when you're not making money, the conversation is about, OK, I can keep doing this kind of cool hobby that I like um, <laughs> or or I could get a job, which would maybe be like less fun, but I'd actually make money. But then if you're making money doing it, then the equation's totally different. It's like, OK, I could sit at a desk and make money or I could do this
1: right. sport mm-hmm. job and mm-hmm. keep
2: making money. Well, duh, I'll keep doing the sport job. So I kept doing the sport job. <laughs> and here we are.
0: Uh, talking about your exactly. uh, throwing the roller skis into trash, what did you do with your rifle?
2: Oh, Raife. I call my rifle Raife. She's a girl. Um, Raife is behind the door in my room right now. I never, so I did shoot twice last year. Huh. I never, I never just went to the range by myself. Um, but there were two occasions on which I had the opportunity to participate in like a biathlon demo or like a fun, you know, coaches competition. And I did that and it was, and it was fun. Um, it was a bit weird when I, like the first time I, I went and did it. Um, and I do. I do think like, I just, I, I give myself some time and I'm still giving myself time, but maybe shooting is something that I, you know, if I continue to live in a place where there's a bath on range or like yeah. a range a 50 meter range. Um, like one cool thing about shooting is that I can keep getting better at it pretty much, you know, for the foreseeable future. Um, that's, probably not the case with my skiing. Um, just given that I'm 35. Um, although I will say my, I did not retire cause I felt like I was slowing down and my body feels as great today as it did two years ago or five years ago. Um, but, sh- but shooting for sure, I can just keep getting better at. And I, for me, retiring, one of the harder, hardest things about retiring was accepting that like. All of the accepting that I was not going to reach some of my goals, sort of like mourning the the death of some of mm-hmm. my hopes and dreams that I was sure I was gonna achieve, um then suddenly coming face to face with like, no, you're never going to achieve those. those are never going to happen like it's done, it's over um and at the same time, like you've spent year after year building this machine that is the athlete body like that's that's my that was my tool like was my body i had to i had to focus on fueling right sleeping right like building muscles building endurance just like that's what's my sport was about the physical Mm -hmm. part so working you know constantly diligently really disciplined working on that for 10 years, and then suddenly saying, okay, like it's never going to be like that again. Like it, it has a way, it sort of has felt like me, oh, kind of it's all downhill from here. Like it's a very, there's like one day where s- suddenly my focus shifted from trying to make sure I was as strong as possible and as fit as possible to just letting that go.
3: Yeah. And
2: mm-hmm. that was actually a lot harder for me than I anticipated. And, um, one thing that I, I, that it has been kind of nice to hold on to in my mind is that like, well, if I wanted to, I could still just go out and continue to shoot mm-hmm. and get better at shooting. And that's mm-hmm. always, po- that option is there for me.
0: So it's not for sale is what I take. From no, that. no, it's not for sale. <laughs> and,
2: and it's funny because I even like, I haven't really shot, but just knowing that in the back of my mind yeah. is well, and at the can, same time, the yeah. other, in the in the forefront of my mind as well, my body is just getting weaker every day. But in the back of my mind, I can still remember that. if I Oh, you'll be fine for a long time. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I know. It's like, I I also feel I really do feel that I'm healthier now than when I was an elite athlete. Like I'm slower, but in in a lot of ways, Mm -hmm. I'm healthier. And I try to focus on that. Like, for sure i had all these neck and back problems you know from skiing with a rifle on and shooting and all that stuff that like i'm mm-hmm. not dealing with anymore and you know i also was definitely um you know i was i was healthy but on the edge in terms of yeah. having enough nutrition as an mm-hmm. athlete mm-hmm. um not because i was restricting my intake at all i was really lucky to never suffer from an eating disorder miraculously but i just by nature of the training being so much and mm-hmm. like the uh, amount of time to rest and eat being so relatively so small yeah. like i i think now um i just feel like you know i have more in, in, a lot more energy and um just in general sort of healthier um in that in that regard it's more so, like a I'm natural a recovery
0: that. for your body yeah, and not yeah. not constantly at the edge
2: not exactly not just exactly i was hmm. just on the edge really on the edge for a long time i think so um yeah feels I. it does it feel like it does feel good to just be more rested down and and better fed
3: yeah yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> well and and i think i read you at some point you said something over the winter time that it was nice to be able to be sick and not have to isolate from everybody
2: oh my god. Yeah. I mean, I just had a tiny cold. I've been really healthy, but it it just, I wasn't stressed about it. I think that was the biggest thing. I mean, mm-hmm. it was so stressful
3: well, impacts all the, the time season, to, then,
2: right? I, I felt like I know when, when the COVID pandemic happened, that really changed a lot um, for normal people about how they feel about exposing themselves to illness and getting sick and wearing masks and isolating. And for elite athletes, at least on my team, it changed nothing. It changed nothing <laughs> about the way we looked at illness. We were already masking yeah. on airplanes and in, you know, dense populated travel situations. We were already isolating the second someone thought that maybe they had a scratch in their throat and isolating. I mean, in a hotel room, not coming out for a week, kind of isolating. Um <sighs> Like we were already doing that and, and getting, you know, super stressed about getting sick because it's like, if you get even just a little sick in biathlon, you can't perform, you can't compete. Mm-hmm. And it takes a long time to come back um,
3: yeah.
2: because, you know, the competition is so high. Like you need to be at a hundred percent. If you're at 99, I mean, okay. 99. Okay. But like 95, no way. Mm-hmm. You're going to be way off the pace. So, um, yeah. You yeah, miss a week nice. of training. I mean, if you miss a week, even if you miss just a week of training, it's like, you're not, Yeah. it's not so much the week of training. It's like the three weeks after that, that it yes. takes to yep. get back to
3: mm-hmm.
2: being really at the top of your game. So now I just like don't care at all.
3: <laughs>
2: and <laughs> No, I mean, of course, if I feel sick, I'll stay away from others, but like I just don't have the same stress that I used to have about, oh, I'm, you know, i prepared for four years for something. I better not get yep. sick today. Right. Um, so, yeah, there are some, there are definitely some, some good things and some bad things about being retired. Mm-hmm. And I'm just, um, it you know, it, learning still every day, like going through this transition. And e- I feel like everything has surprised me the way I react to everything has been just not necessarily what I expected um
3: but it's it's interesting um,
0: yeah just one more follow-up question Jordan and then yes, it's all yes, yours. Yes. Um, you were talking about soccer penalties compared to mm-hmm. shooting
3: mm-hmm.
0: um based on biathlon shooting do you think penalty tr- like penalty shootouts at world cups and stuff can those be trained
2: Trained. Especially
0: well well can you can you train for being in that moment? So
2: yeah. similar
0: to biathlon. Definitely. Of course you can shoot under pressure mm-hmm. during a race and sort of simulate some pressure, but do you feel at a biathlon practice can you really replicate that feeling that you get when you're, you know, force shooting two more shots, yes. you're clean. And if you clean the last two, you're gonna win the race.
2: Yes. You is definitely to... can train it. Um, I, there's a lot of different ways to, to do it. Um, but I think one thing that really amazed me was I did, I did quite a bit of visualization training in the last several years of my career. Um, and visualization training, I mean, it's, it is, it's, known to that just just visualizing something can have the same effect on the brain as actually doing it Mm -hmm. in terms of like activating the same parts of the brain um in terms of memory in terms of experience in terms of adrenaline um just literally just visualizing it um replicates doing it um what was amazing to me is that i would often do visualization with shooting so I would maybe I'd visualize myself skiing around the course, coming into the range, and then I would actually take my rifle out and if I was at the range, you know, I'd shoot on the target or um I would do this funny thing that by athletes biathletes by do called dry fire um where you you know, you're indoors, you have no ammunition and you basically hang a piece of paper on the wall that's got five little black dots on it and you can rehearse the the motion and the psychology of getting into position, pointing the rifle at those dots. And, and, you know, you make the dots really small. So even if you're standing in a room with them, they look like they're 50 meters away. Um, so I would do visualization and and then do dry fire. And I could, I mean, my heart rate would, would get elevated <laughs> doing just visualization. So um, that sh- convinced me that it was helping practice for those situations um we that's one thing we that i did um we also did you know in training we did a lot of sort of pressure scenarios where i mean there's you can dream up a million different things but Mm -hmm. um you know things where you're competing with your teammates for a prize or um you know you're all of your teammates stand behind you and cheer or boo if you hit or miss. People try to distract you in funny ways. Um, maybe w- you do the whole practice, and the coach says, "Okay, the last shooting is the only one that counts today." And so, when you're really tired and you've done like two and a half an hour, two and a half hours of skiing, you know the last one is the one that counts. And the re- he's going to write down the results and show everybody on the team who got, you know, the best score whatever i mean we did so many drills like that to Mm -hmm. imitate um to imitate that kind of pressure um i think i mean there's so many stories of athletes i think about um like Lowell bailey comes to mind when he hit all 20 targets and won a gold medal at world championships he talked about how every you know every day all summer he thought about that race and planned for that race and thought about how he was going to execute that. And, um, that stuff pays off. Definitely. Um, visualizing, doing things the way you want to do it is the key. Um, and, and you can also practice, you can practice preparing for difficult scenarios that you know you might have. So you, maybe one day you visualize exactly the situation you described, like, you're leading the race and you've hit 19 targets and you have one more like you can visualize that you can visualize it getting windy suddenly um and even just thinking about those situations helps you plan and (laughs) and and then when you do have that situation like the critical step i always i make this kind of as a joke but it's really true the first step is knowing that you have a problem and like in biathlon that is true if you if you're on the shooting range you're going through your shooting i mean you can it's very easily easy to just miss four or five and leave and wonder what did i just do at the shooting range <laughs> Like the first step is recognizing you have a problem oh it's windy and then saying oh i've planned for this mm-hmm. and if you have planned for it that's what you can do you can recognize they have a problem and say i know what to do and then you 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 execute your plan. You take account the wind, you do whatever you need to do, or, you know, you're coming into the range and you're thinking about, oh gosh, I better hit them all. If I do, I'll win. Then you recognize that's a problem. You need to not be thinking about that. That's not hopeful. That's a distraction. Oh, I'm distracted. That's my problem. Okay. I've planned for that. Here's my solution. Here's what I'm going to do. So yeah, you can definitely plan for that. And I'm sure, um, the professional soccer players, like the ones that we just watched in the world cup, um, I'm sure they've done a lot of practice for those distractions for thinking, okay, this is my winning World Cup kick. How am I going to take it? You know, that's, I'm sure they've done
3: that.
0: Well, it's, from what I've been reading and I'm, being from Holland, I get mostly uh, from the Dutch websites, but there's still a lot of coaches that feel that you shouldn't train for it and just trust that you have a good shot and that you'll be fine. And mm. it always surprised me because the power of visualization is so so mm-hmm. strong and i both for future event and past because when you were talking about um your highlights with susan winning her second i could i think i could tell from your facial expression that that brought up a lot of emotion so yeah um yeah i think there's a lot of power in there but i was curious about your uh experience with that so thank you
2: yeah well and i like i think the the goal like th- that you're describing from the Dutch coaches where they say you should take it like every other kick. That's absolutely true. And that's true in Bathlon too. You should take every shot the same way, whether it's the winning shot or a random shot in the backyard. But the fact of the matter is you will be distracted when you're taking the winning shot, probably and probably not when you're in the backyard. And so you have to prepare mm-hmm. for the fact that you're going to be distracted because you will be All right. That's a fact of nature. You will be distracted. Mm -hmm. You will have those emotions. Um, and and then you have to have a plan of how you are going to redirect your energy onto actually taking the kick the same way you do every time. And what does that mean? Saying, oh gosh, I better do this the same way. That doesn't help you. Doing it the same way is it's a it's a methodology. It's okay, back right corner you know, or mm-hmm. I, I don't play soccer, so I have no yeah. idea, yeah, but like, yeah. you know, for bathon it's like, I'm going to take the shot the same way I do, which means good trigger squeeze, which means, right. you know, follow through whatever you're doing. Um, so well, the, the Dutch coaches aren't wrong, right? but it's like, you have to accept that people are going to be distracted and plan for how you're going to deal with
3: that. Yeah. yeah.
0: No, but I, I think visualization, visualization goes as far as that you actually have that emotional experience.
2: Definitely. If you
0: do it every day, like you said. So then when you get to the situation, it's not new and it's not uncomfortable yeah. or yeah. less and, uncomfortable, and I guess.
2: It's it, the visualization definitely helps. It of course helps to do it. I mean, actually do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one thing that I've, I really have seen so much, uh, in the last couple of years. Well, I, I specifically watch Hannah Auchenthaler because she's my coach's daughter. <laughs>
3: mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. Um, but she's so young. I mean, she's like 22 or something. Mm-hmm. I don't even know if she's 22. She maybe just turned 22. So it's very young. Um, but she is a world champion. I mean, she, as you probably watched, was part of this sensational Italian women's relay mm-hmm. uh, in Oberhof last winter where they put her on the third leg and she led the entire thing. And she missed one target out of ten, and you know, hit it on her first spare, got that target down, and just led the entire thing. And you know, you know, she's a world champion, and I, you know, I have stood on lane one in Oberhof in a relay, and I did not perform that way, and it Mm -hmm. sort of haunts Mm -hmm. me, as a matter of fact. And I think about. You know, there there was a time earlier in my Bathlon career where I'd, I would watch these, you know, people like Hannah Alcantara burst onto the World Cup and and become a world champion. Or I remember Anaïs Chevalier from France showing up and and winning a World Cup in Novi Mesto, where she was leading the pursuit, came into the last shooting all alone, hit all five, no problem, left and won the race. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, it's like her first time ever. How does she mm-hmm. do that? and now i know better and it is not their first time like
3: mm-hmm.
2: Anne chevalier was winning races at the ibu cup she was winning races at world juniors same with hannah hannah I can tell her i watched her at world juniors the year before um yep. anchor her team her relay team there her junior women's relay team in a really high stress head-to-head shooting with germany last shooting hits all five like she's been there before that wasn't her first time either because she's done in italian championships Mm -hmm. and i mean of course every stage is new and bigger and different but when you're the athlete it feels it feels the same whether it's the world champion what the biggest thing for you at that time in your life is the biggest thing so whether it's your italian championships or your world juniors or the world ibu cup or the world cup or the world championships or the olympics like if you have been on the biggest stage of your life whatever that stage was at a time and had those moments, that's going to help you so much when you're at the next stage. And that's something that I think in the U S we really struggle with. Cause like for someone like me, almost every single biathlon race I ever did was on the world cup. I did 187 world cup starts, I think. And I, I think I did 200 or less overall biathlon races. I mean, almost none. I did a couple US championships throughout. Yep. I did US championships every year.
3: Right.
2: But when I went to my first World Cup, I had done, you know, two IBU Cup races the weekend before and, you know, a couple races in the US. So all of that experience yeah. for me, and not just me, but a lot of American athletes, a lot yeah, of Canadian yeah. athletes, any athlete from developing Bathlon Nation, like, we're doing all of that experience at the world cup <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. and that's challenge
1: at the world cup and generally at an older age right then yeah. right because they're all at juniors right they're coming mm-hmm. up and and even yeah. before that even so
2: and, and the, i think that makes a difference too like the 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 great young european athletes like julia Simon, who's really young um I mean, I don't, I think she's probably 25 or six mm-hmm. and she this year and she won the World Cup overall this year, but of course she's been, you know, talented before this year too. So people like her or Hannah or, you know, so many others. Um, Sturla, Homelagrad on the men's side. I'm sorry if I'm, I'm ignoring the men. Um, they, I think when they do biathlon starting from a young age, one thing, one huge advantage they have is that they, get used to having ups and downs of bath on results.
3: Mm-hmm. Like
2: sometimes you would just do really badly. Like you you just shoot poorly. Like it's not the skiing, I'm not talking about the ski, I'm talking about shooting. Like you can even the best people sometimes just miss a ton in shooting and then you just have a horrible result. And so you do have situations like I think the most extreme one I've seen was Justine Brisat one day it was 84th and the next day was first. <laughs> and at a World Cup yeah, yeah. Um. And uh, literally one day to the next. And you do not have that in other sports. You just don't. Like in cross-country skiing, you absolutely do not. I mean, you'd have to have a major, major crash or like a crazy problem with wax, like huh. some external thing, mm-hmm. to have any kind of swing like that. And that would be extremely rare. Um, of course in like running or track and field, you just don't see that, um, Mm -hmm. you know, the fastest people are the fastest people. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and so for me coming from a background of running and cross country skiing, where I kind of, you know, before the competition, you kind of know how you're going to stack up and you, you know, about where you're going to be. And, and frankly, I had never dealt with being so close to last, you know, like, if you're close yeah. to last, you don't make it in cross country skiing or right. running. Yeah. If you're close to last, you might be first the next day in Bathlon. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> so I yeah. wasn't I wasn't used to that um that failure, uh mm-hmm. like regular basis, daily black and white failure, like missing black and white. It's mm-hmm. I was not used to that. And so it was it made it hard for me to learn to be I mean, I was always resilient in the sense that I just kept working through stuff, but like I didn't, it wasn't easy for me. It took a right. lot of mental energy. Um, whereas I see some of these young athletes who grew up doing biathlon who it, it really just goes by, they're like, okay, I had a bad race. And it doesn't, it really, I think it does affect them less because they're used to it. They've been dealing with that since a young age and they understand that aspect of the sport so much right. more, so much. So much better to be
0: be able to close a book right yeah, after the race. Yeah, just yeah.
2: you know, put it behind them. What it you know, yeah. I, I always think I what I tried to do is think what did I learn and then move on. But yeah. it's so much easier said than done.
1: Yeah, for sure. So we've taken up a ton of your time. <laughs>
2: well, so
1: we're we're coming up on two hours. Okay. Um <laughs> is have, anyone
2: going to listen to this?
1: We'll break it. We'll break <laughs> this it. This is like right?
2: my therapy session, so thank you. I'm like in the oh, mood no. to talk about biathlon.
1: Thank you. Well, I'm uh, enjoying this immensely. I think I probably got several more hours in me, but I, I, what I, i have <laughs> seriously, I've got some some other big topics, and okay, okay, I'm, okay. I'm gonna hang on to them, and we're okay. gonna have you on some other time, okay? Because I'm having too much fun with this. Uh, these are sort okay. of evergreen topics; they're not gonna go away. But okay. before I before I let you go, this is one of the RJ.